We can get started now, everybody. Yes, thank you for your patience. We are streaming this live on DCPL um, YouTube channel. So if you have friends and folks who are far away, close nearby, um, tell them to tune in to DCPL, DC Public Library, YouTube. Okay, so yes, you can hit that present button. Um, nope, not that one, one over, you see where it says share? All the way over, yep, click, nope, nope, share. There you go, yep, and now it says present. Present one time. Thank you so much. And as a matter of fact, I'll start right there. Um, on the uh, <laughs> on the computer is Joshua Davis. He is a student at the Bard College High School, or high school and college, and he is one of our assistants here tonight, so we thank him very much for being on tap. We have Stacy Hill, who's helping out with the food. We have the DCPL, you could clap if you want to, the AV team who's streaming. We have Mr. Eric White, who's uh, a senior member of DC Public Library, and he's just doing all kinds of um, things to help out here. We have Kenny White in the front, and he is also a senior member of DCPL. So now, why are we doing this program? This is a follow-up from our 2019 program uh, where we had, it was really run by youth. It was formed by and about youth. And they were talking about why journey to Africa. So this is the follow-up. And we're talking about strengthening the relationships between Africans and African Americans. Okay, and that's so necessary because most of us understand, or maybe some of us don't, how the division happened. How did the division happen? The division happened by the colonizers and, and the, the Western powerful influences. And we're going to talk about that and shed some light on that. Um, I want to get into the intros. Next slide. Obi Ekbuna, Jr. Born in London, England. Raised in Washington, D.C. Received a degree in political science from the University of the District of Columbia in 1992. Founding member of the Pan-African Liberation Organization, established in Washington, D.C. from 1990 to 2007. Technical advisor for the Pan-African Student Youth Movement, PASM, at Bowie State University, and for Ceasefire Don't Smoke the Brothers in Washington, D.C. For more than 20 years, he has dedicated, next slide, his life to organizing communities throughout the world, from St. Louis to Seattle, to Selma, to Havana, to Zimbabwe. Written, published articles in The Final Call, The Chicago Standard, Rastafarian Today. He is the first U.S. correspondent to The Herald, Zimbabwe's national newspaper, and the first U.S. correspondent in the country's 32 years as an independent nation. He has taught African history at Roots Public Charter School, Ujamaa Shule, Northwestern High School and Sankofa Homeschool Collective. He currently teaches African history virtually every Saturday to communities in DC, Canada, and Connecticut. Next slide. He is the founding director of Mass Emphasis Children's Theater and playwright, and he is a playwright. He has written Sally plays about Sally Mugabe, Lorraine Hansberry, Kwame Ture, and Thomas Sankara. He is currently promoting the reissue of his father's book, Destroyed This Temple, Voice of Black Power in Britain. And you, you can see him again April 13th 
at the Shaw Neighborhood Library. Next slide, please. Next slide. Jacqueline Kamazima, Tanzanian native and creative entrepreneur, owner of J. Kanule Boutique that provides African fashion and arts that channel the richness of Africa. Nonprofit professional currently working at NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Health Illness. Advocate for mental health and wellness. Jacqueline has served in various capacities in community organizations, including as executive secretary, and board member on a Tanzanian nonprofit in the New York City area, New York Tanzanian community. Next slide. She lives in Washington, D.C., in the Washington, D.C. area, but her business ventures lead her to travel frequently back to her home country and a proven uh, Friends of Tanzanian member <laughs> and volunteer over the past several years. Next slide. She has engaged with other organizations that champion Tanzania and has been a member of Diaspora Council on Tanzanians in America. She embraces the concept of Mbutu. According to the New World Encyclopedia, Mbutu is a traditional African concept. The word Mbutu comes from the Zulu and Xhosa languages and can be roughly translated as humanity towards others. Next slide, please. Michael Y.A. Makash, born and raised in Ghana, currently living in the United States. He cares deeply for his home country. Next slide, please. And as a historian, dedicates his time and energy to introducing others to its beauty. He is an entrepreneur with S.A. Odom products, shea butter, soaps, straight from Ghana, he pours a lot of love into his landlord merchandise, Manners Matters for Ghana, Giant Brain Consult, and Osad, how do you say Osajifo Farms. Thank you. Makash is a digital nomad, building brands and assisting others with their marketing and business journeys. He has the Ghana Travel Consult. He is a Ghana Travel Consultant with Indigene Tours. He gives unforgettable tours of Ghana, curated and designed with wealth of knowledge of culture and history of Ghana. Global, he is a global relocation consultant, temporary for folks making temporary and permanent moves to West Africa. Next slide, please. Monica Utsi, graduate of Howard University. You know, H-U, you know. <laughs> Educator, writer, travel consultant, digital content creator, homeschool consultant. Young Living Essential Oils brand ambassador and 20-year homeschool veteran. Next slide. She has written for a variety of local and national publications. She's chronicled her homeschooling adventures in her blog, Chocolate Cover Boy Joy, and vlogs about homeschooling and travel in Ghana. YouTube channels, Chocolate City Home School Life, and Him Tours. She is the co-founder of Sankofa Homeschool Community, a support group for homeschoolers of the African diaspora. In 2011, she led the expansion of Sankofa Homeschool Community with the founding of Sankofa Homeschool Collective. 
She's the founding parent of the Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company. She is founding president of the Southern DC chapter of Mocha Moms Incorporated. She is a passionate advocate for children's education, literacy teacher for the Boys and Girls Club number 14 for almost a decade. She is a reading tutor for the Maya Angelou Young Adult Learning Center. Center. After a solo trip to Ghana, next slide, visiting every region, she became the US travel coordinator for Him Tours Ghana, a full service travel company. Her future plans include the creation of an NGO in Accra that will focus on childhood literacy and expanding the global reach of the Sankofa Homeschool Learning Network. So give it up for our panelists, y'all. Yeah. All right. And next slide, please. So before we begin this discussion, here are some grounding thoughts. We know that the divisions were created by the Western world. Let us be clear on that. Okay? And that was for what? Anybody want why do you think they created these divisions? Anybody? Yes. Um, I would say to separate communities and break them apart. Absolutely. Want to add to that? To easily control population, the black population. To easily control the populations, to separate communities. What about the wealth? The wealth that is inherently to Africa, okay? Um, our wealth, our culture, knowledge, there are lots of reasons, okay? We're going to get into it. Um, some of the negative perceptions, we have negative, negative perceptions about one another that are pervasive that uh, Western media has planted in us. Um, what if we move beyond them? What would happen? Beyond the negative perceptions, beyond the stereotypes, beyond the divisions. What would happen? So we ask you, imagine, imagine this. You have, you have, okay, okay. Um, I think I would definitely, we would definitely see more people, especially black Americans, we would see them traveling more often to where we're originally from, definitely. Thank you, Joshua. Did y'all hear that? Yeah. All right. Um, and we're here to think about solutions, the now, solutions for the now, and for solutions for the future, okay? All right. So we're going to open it up. Next slide, please. So, and we're gonna, we're gonna say everyone has two minutes. Two minutes only because of time. We'd love to be here all night, but two minutes, oh, Big Boona Jr. <laughs> what is your, and we're gonna start from Jacqueline. And then there will be question and answer, so this is a discussion, right? What is your cultural perspective? Tell us about your experience growing up in your country. Okay. Um, well, first of all, thank you all for being here. Um, it's good to have you all. Can you hear me well? It's getting better. Okay, perfect. All right. Um, so, as Maria mentioned, I am from Tanzania, um, East Africa. That is where that's located, more specifically, right where Lake Victoria is at. That is at the, let me see, northwest of Tanzania. So, very much neighboring Uganda. And so growing up um, there, um, I left at a very young age. I was born there. 
um, and I was born into the tribe known as the Haya tribe. Mind you, Tanzania has over 200 tribes, okay? So I'm just one of those tribes. <laughs> and so um, I was raised there, uh, my siblings, uh, four of them, um, and my parents are both Haya. And so we also have roots of royalty, right? And we have connections even up to Ethiopia, and we have ancestry. My great-grandmother was from Rwanda. She was a Tutsi. And so there's a lot of connection, right, um, all over Africa, so to say. And so growing up, um, it was early childhood because I came to the United States at the age of eight. And so growing up there, just the development stage, right, um, I would be honest with you in saying that I did not have much knowledge of African history, nor did I have much knowledge or yeah, any knowledge really of um, African-American history. And I would say part of that is really, as she mentioned, attributed to information. Our African ancestry, and I would just say black heritage, just we learn through oral history. Our ancestors will communicate to us about us and who we are and so forth. And so none of that was in the textbooks. And even if it was, it wasn't valid with the worst gaps. And I came to learn that when I came to the United States. And so I didn't have much knowledge. Um, even until leaving and coming here, it was me learning from scratch and even learning about our history. And, you know, thank God to Molinierele, Julius Cambaragenielele. Some of you may be familiar with him. He was the first president of Tanzania. Huge Pan-Africanist. And so he really um, fought the colonization and really the champion in Africa, and so that's really what led me to be even more interested in learning more about myself and my people who are here. Thank you, Jackie. Hello, how are you all doing? Fine. Yes, uh, I'm Michael from Ghana, West Africa. I know uh, most of you have heard about Ghana. Originally called, or colonial-wise called Gold Coast. And after independence, which was gained by the first president of Ghana, Kwame Nkrumah, we changed the name from Gold Coast to Ghana. And Ghana literally means a warrior king. And I come from the daughter part of Ghana. Growing up in Ghana, you know, I've had my education all throughout, uh, all my education in Ghana. And I was never taught about African Americans or African history, you know. In college, I got to a point where uh, my literates did not even know more about their own history. And so they were not in a position to teach us about our history. With African Americans, the only access of information that I had when I was growing up to know more about them was through hip hop music. And it was the negative aspect of the mainstream hip-hop music. I remember watching um, um, the series called Soul Food on TV. And that was also another way that I had access to African-Americans. To mind you, I had already taken on the information that I had from mainstream hip-hop music. And at a point, I taught every African-American was comfortable with the N-word and the B-word. We 
my friends and I, as a point in school, started calling ourselves the N-word and the B-word. Mm. And we thought it was okay. I know you're saying, mm, but the fact is, until this day, I just got back from Ghana. It's high school students who are comfortable calling themselves the N-word and the B-word. Because they think it's okay, they think all African Americans are comfortable calling themselves the N-word. Mm. So the information that I have I had about African Americans was never positive. And it's still there to this day. But how was I able to come out of that? We're not talking about that. Okay. <laughs> okay. 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 <laughs> Can everybody hear me? Yeah, keep talking. Okay. I'm honored to be here tonight. Real quickly, um, in terms of cultural perspective, as last year marked the 100th birthday of the leader of the revolution in Guinea, Akme Sekouture, their first president, founder of the Democratic Party of Guinea, in my humble opinion, he had the most lucid uh, definition of culture. He said, culture is the sum total of spiritual and material values obtained by humanity throughout its history. For us as Africans, making our cultural and political expression synonymous is arguably the biggest challenge of the decolonization process. So first, starting in terms of America, tell the Democrats and Republicans, even if we got to put it in a president, we're going to give them their definition of America back because it represents torture, it represents genocide, it represents rape, it represents plunder. So Africans in North America, Central America, Latin America, the Caribbean, we come together in the Americas to be the ultimate force of resistance. That's how we look at America. And the only thing that separates us, are we going to sit down and argue over was cutting sugarcane in Haiti and Cuba and the Dominican Republic more dehumanizing than picking cotton, tobacco in North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi? Absolutely not. Looking at Africa, challenging the concept in North Africa because of the Arab infusion is not part of Africa. So when Barack Obama and NATO bombed Libya for six months in a row, we don't do anything about it. Casual at best. West Africa is the only part of Africa worthy of our attention. Southern Africa, a region of 14 nations, reduced to the autobiographies of Madiba Nelson and Winnie Mandela. No, 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 no. The, this, this notion that diversity and variety takes precedence over unity. So if you go to any university in this country, a PBI like Chicago State, a HBCU like Howard, a Spelman, a Fisk, you got a Caribbean student union separated from an African student union. The Africans born in the continent, the student government is the U.S. born Africans. We say U.S. born Africans. We don't know what an African American is. But they're supposed to be separate. So no, 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 our challenge is to deal with that. Thank you, Obi. Um, I guess the question, what is your cultural, well, that's your cultural perspective. Yeah. What is your experience growing up? Where did you grow up? Oh, um, I was born in London. That woman could never be marked me. I don't even respect the feudal lords in Africa. I would have been in war with them, you understand? So you know what she got coming. Um, then we go from London to Nigeria. And um, of course, being an English speaking, and matter of fact, I was taught I've never called myself a Nigerian once in my life. 
My father and mother told me I was African. Because if you talk about the nation you're from, the next thing they're going to ask you is what tribe you're from. We don't have tribes in Africa. We have nations. Tribe implies we're not civilized. So that, that's, how, that's how I was socialized, and I spent most of my life in Washington, D.C., and I understand the advantage of being in Washington, D.C., interacting with Africans from all over the African continent, Caribbean-born Africans, Africans-born in Latin America, and seeing our um, connection. And the police and others who come to exploit and dehumanize us remind us we're the same, even if we think we're different. Thank you. Y'all hear that? Even if we think we're different, we are the same. That's going to be emphasized and re-emphasized throughout this piece this evening. All right, Miss Monica. Uh, <clears throat> I'm grateful to be here um, as well, and uh, Obi and I work together um, in a number of uh, ways. So um, I grew up on the eastern shore of Maryland, and so I didn't have, I don't recall having contact um, or interaction with Africans. Um, and then when I moved to um, the D.C. area in terms of my schooling, I still don't recall having any um, interaction with Africans. But I didn't have negative, um, I didn't have negative ideas about Africans. In fact, I had a yearning to know more about my history and my culture. I was the only person in my high school, friendly high school, who signed up for black studies. So the class ended up being canceled. And I couldn't understand how all these black people in this school and nobody wants to know about their history but me. So it wasn't until um, I uh, enrolled at Howard University and I, you know, I took every black history, every anything about Africa, I enrolled. But I still didn't have interactions with, you know, I didn't have African friends. So um, I didn't have a negative perception of Africans or Africa, but I did not have interactions like friendships. How did you, like, escape not having uh, negative perceptions of it? I mean, well, because I, I saw them as, a, you know, like me. They look like me. Um, when um, my son, one of my uh, sons is here. But when I was raising them, we spent a lot of time at the library, and, we, and I read a lot of books to them. And <clears throat> I intentionally decided that until they were at least 10 years old, I wouldn't teach them anything about slavery, and I wouldn't allow them to, uh, I wouldn't read or allow them to read books that had white people in them. I wanted to just fill them up with Africa because at that time, I thought I would send them to school, and I knew that once they, you know, went to school, they would be, you know, they, their confidence, um, and they would just be assaulted. So I said, let me fill them up now. And I went, we were on a vacation with Teresa, my friend, who's in the audience, and um, it was a timeshare, and they have um, little events. And so I took Zion, my oldest, I took him to the event and everybody had to introduce himself and say where they were from. And when they got to Zion, he said, I'm from Africa. And, and the man was like, oh, really? Where? He said, I don't know. I just know I'm African. And I attribute that to the fact that all of the books that we read with the folktales, the people looked like him. So he just associated himself with being an African. And so I think, you know, for me, that is how I saw it, that they, we may not speak the same language, we, we may not be from the same place, but obviously, we're, you look at each other, you see we're African. 
Okay, thank you, everyone. We're going on to the next. What was your relationship and perception of African Americans or Africans before you traveled outside of your homeland? Um, you can just kind of further expound if you want. We're going to go your way. We're going to start with you, Monica. Um, well, as I said, I didn't have a negative perception. In fact, um, I, I was intentional in how I raised and educated my children. Um, and I considered it to be African-centered. So we read a lot about Africa. I always wanted to travel, but I was afraid to fly. So it just stayed on my wish list. Um, and so so my perception, I, I think it was, you know, largely positive. And I, I understood, um, you know, through my own readings and, you know, through sitting in classes with my children, their Pan-African history classes with Obi, I understood that, um, you know, if there is poverty, if there is, is corruption, if there are these things that exist in Africa, they also exist in America on a larger scale. So I wasn't, I think because of the education that I was yearning for and, and trying to pass on to my children and also getting from the community that I was a part of, that I, I understood that Africa was complex and had, very, it had many faces. Um, my perspective has always been shaped by my organizing. So um, once again, is are the best organizers in this country in Washington, D.C.? You can't objectively state that. Are they the most strategically important? Without question. This is the surveillance capital of the world. So we have a unique perspective on the FBI, on the CIA, on the Pentagon, on the U.S. military, on the United States Agency for International Development. So these are the things that try to shape you. For the sake of moving this along rapidly, the method that we've developed is before we focus on the African continent, we'll take the Africans that are household names whose contributions in relationship to Africa, good and bad, the masses may not have quality exposure to. Every time Thurgood Marshall's name is mentioned, they mention Brown versus Board of Education in the Supreme Court. He helped write Kenya's constitution and put a mandate in there that Africans must go to court for their land, not knock on the door of the former colonizer and say, we whipped you on the battlefield, get out my house. He did that. Harry Belafonte went to Guinea as an emissary of the US Peace Corps to negotiate with Guinea to begin to send dancers and drummers here. Dr. Martin Luther King, many people don't know, went to Africa before Malcolm X. He went for Ghana's independence celebration. Of course, I'm honored to be here because many of our people embrace um, Swahili as our national language in terms of cultural expression. So many Africans from the 1960s started going to Tanzania. And those of us who were involved with Southern African liberation movements, the last part of Africa to gain its independence from colonial rule, all those forces that fought in armed struggles, they trained in Tanzania. So if you work with PAC, you learned about Tanzania. If you work with ZANU-PF, you learned about Tanzania. If you work with Namibia, this is our work. So that's how our perspective was shaped. And any time we looked at someone who we admired and saw how their work in Africa, Maya Angelou is remembered by many as Bill Clinton's favorite poet. Yeah. She was part of the first repatriate community in Ghana. So that's how our perspective is shaped through struggle, through more struggle, and more struggle after that. Um, <laughs> my perception about African Americans before I traveled out of Ghana 
I thought every African American was a hip hop artist. R and B and soul. Because that was the image that I saw growing up. I didn't see anything else apart from the mu- mainstream music and sagging of pants. As a young man growing up, I thought it was everything that I had to do with you know, African Americans. So when I practiced that, I thought I was you know, living that aspect of the culture of African Americans. And until this day, it's still going on in high schools. A lot of the youngest in high school sack their pants because they think that's the right thing about African Americans. So it's a lot of negative aspect of the culture, black culture, that was instilled in us when I was growing up. And like I said, the N-word and then the B-word, we thought it was a regular thing. We called our I, I personally called myself the N-word, thinking it was okay. So I'm just telling y'all all the aspect of the culture that was being taught or sold to us in code. So I practiced a lot of negative aspect of the African-American culture. So I thought everybody was like that. Until I came into contact, when I started my tourism company, I came into contact with, you know, uh, African-Americans. And the first person that, you know, I traveled Ghana, I ran Ghana with, I thought he was comfortable with the N-word. So I called him, you know, hey, you know, what's up, man? Wait a minute. What are you talking about, brother? Don't call me that. So that triggered something. And me, I was like, hold on, maybe these people are not what, you know, I see on TV or in the music videos. So that triggered my quest to research. And then, fortunately, when I met my wife, through, who is an African-American, you know, through my tourism company, we had a very uh, intellectual conversation, just like we're doing right now. So she exposed me to another part of the African-American culture. So I was like, hold on. Something isn't right. In order for you to research, you have to first of all question. So I started questioning. Then I was like, okay, since I wasn't taught anything about African-Americans in, in, in the curriculum, the schools that I've been to, and also all the information that I received about African-Americans was negative, I have to personally do my research and educate myself. I started listening to Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, you know, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, and attending Pan-African programs in Ghana by uh, one of the renowned newspaper uh, owners called, editors called uh, Quisi Pratt. So these are some of the things that I started getting myself involved, and then my perception started changing. But that's just me. It's a lot of people out there in Ghana who don't have or who are not willing to learn what they have been taught about African-American or what they have seen about African-Americans. Okay, all right. (laughs) All right. What he's saying is very true. Um, The first time I went to... Yes. the first time I went to Ghana um, was in 2019, and I was with a large group, uh, 
of almost 100 people, part of a, a Fadafina Khan community. Um, and we were at Asin Manso, which is the Slave River Bath. This is the place where our ancestors um, took their last bath um, after traveling, walking 600 miles from the northern region. And uh, the tour guide was giving us all this deep history. And then he said, you know, yeah, my nigga. And we were, we were all like, what? And, and at first we thought maybe he didn't say that because surely he couldn't be, you know, using that word with us. And so we had to educate him. But he was a historian giving us history about African enslavement and using the word nigga. Right. Wow. Thank you for emphasizing that point. Wow. Um, just marinating. <laughs> okay. Um, how did my, I would say my perception continues to evolve. Um, I believe information changes us. And so I've taken it upon myself to continue to learn. Um, information is very powerful. And so as I mentioned, when I came here at a very young age, I didn't have much knowledge of, you know, myself, my origin um, in terms of like true, the history of it and even African-American history. And so I took it upon myself to learn and get the information. I didn't realize when I came here that, okay, people here in the United States, they don't like getting information. They don't like doing research. Yes, that is something I noticed in 2000. People just were like, I'm going to go with the, what the news says, and that's it. All right? And so that's when I realized when I came, I re just as Monica mentioned, I didn't have a negative perception of African-Americans. In fact... I was excited because now I was here and I was a minority, whereas over there, everybody's the same, I'm the majority. And so I was like, those are my people. We look alike, we have similar experiences in terms, in terms of um, oppression, and as far as I'm concerned, we have deeper ancestry connection. I said deeper because technically speaking, the first human came from where? Eastern Africa. So therefore, every single person on this continent, on this globe, rather than even just the continent, is African. I don't care what anyone says. We all have some blood, some root of African. And so I said African Americans to me were a deeper connection. And so despite the name callings of this and that, for me, it was like, you know what, there's more past that. And I came to understand that we were both, we talked about control, right? designed to be pit against each other and therefore think so-and-so sold me off. Oh, you don't know much. Oh, I'm enslaved. Just a whole lot of back and forth. To me, I, I moved past that. And it was more of, let me learn about your history. Why do you use the N-word? You know, you mentioned that, right? The context around it. And I really, I, in some ways, I'd say, you know, here, people use it. And so that we have to understand when we say, when we, you know, I don't want to say dog somebody else for saying it in Africa, we also need to evaluate ourselves here. How and why are we using it? In all places, in all contexts. And so learning, education, information, and I'm not talking about textbook education because that clearly didn't do me well. 
even in, even in college. I, it was me taking it upon myself and bless my parents, always going back and forth. They knew a lot and shared a lot. And I, would, I want to point this out about religion. Religion is another form of control. As far as I'm concerned, it's a way of politics. It's a way of control. Um, we as black people, and I'm saying black people, African Americans, um, black, black people all over the world, we have always been a spiritual people. Constantly connected, whether it's to our ancestors, whether it's to rituals, faith and spirituality has always been there besides the religious political aspect of it. And so that was another connection that I found, and that is a, another perception I had. And so I, as far as I'm concerned, I became more and more in awe and very much have a huge respect for African Americans because they paved, you all paved the way for us Africans who came by choice. And some people didn't, but came by choice, built this country on the back. And so as far as I'm concerned, I'm very much, have so much respect for them. And I do want to also mention that um, we are all, as black people, on a journey of self-discovery. Because for so long, we didn't know much about ourselves, and we only took the perception that was given to us, you know, holding that little white doll and thinking that, that's how I need to be, and that that's the only thing, and that I am inferior. And so for that, now I'm able to say, hold up. We are excellence. We were royalty. We were queens and still are before colonization, before slavery, and we still will be. And so just being able to embrace ourselves and love ourselves more will also help us to love each other more. And so for me, um, I'm embracing that excellence that we carry. And that power, because it's power. When, when, the, when the white man came and said, Hoda, they have a lot of power than me. And so therefore, in order for me to control them, I got to do this and that. I must take. Because we're that much powerful. And we remain powerful. And so learning information is the, what will continue to evolve our perception of one another. So how do we, so you all are quite astute, you're educated, you, you know, some of you have grown up in conscious households, Obi, um, like myself, but how do we get to the folks who are not necessarily inquisitive, digging, learning, reading, um, asking questions, you know, having black books read to them, and how do we get to people in the library who are just going out on the computer and, and don't care and don't want to go anywhere, don't want to go to Africa. That's not, that's something negative. How do we, how do we deal with that? If, if I may, yeah, I was going to say, if I may real quick, um, we're in a power, in a place of, um, we're in a technology era. And so, social media, social media is huge, right? I think that's a way to get it. I, I look at my niece, <laughs> and she's always on her phone. TikTok, 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 right? Information is passing through those avenues, literally. People are learning through those platforms. And so in order to learn, we need to understand that there are different ways to learn. I'm in mental health, in the mental health field. And so one of the things I look at is through a DEI lens, or let me clarify, JEDI, Justice, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion lens. And so it's being able to understand that people receive information differently. People 
share information differently. And so we have to look at all those different avenues, especially the young generation, if we're trying to share the information correctly because the schools haven't done it so well, is we have to speak to them in the way that they receive the information. So I think social media and just overall technology, not just social media, is a huge tool that we ought to leverage, and it is continuing to grow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So keep that in mind, social media, right, Allende? Like, if somebody was to do a TikTok about traveling to Africa, would you pay attention to that? I'm just asking, I put you on the spot. Okay, I'm okay. is my mama, Monica's son. So you would pay attention to it. Rather than somebody lecturing you, or, I mean, I'm thinking about when I'm pointing to you, I'm thinking about lots of young people. So TikTok is happening. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So speaking about information. Uh, I think we need to be very careful when we talk about information because like uh, Thomas Sankara said, he who feeds you controls you. Controls you. So whoever has power over what any kind of information that you're receiving has power over your mind. So when we come into contact, like you're saying, uh, would you like to go to Africa? Yes or no? Ah, oh, nah. <laughs> It's mainly because of what the kind of information you received. Yeah. It's not because you have been there personally and have experienced two types of you know people that one is experience and one is what you've been taught. So most people have been taught negatively. Like I was saying, black culture was taught to me negatively, just as a lot of African cultures are being taught over here negatively. So. We need to be very careful with information. If we don't control the right information, we are not going to get the right answers. And we are still gonna be where we are till this day. One of the reasons why we are so separated from one another is information. I'm holding on to what I know about African Americans, whether it's positive or negative. You're holding on to what you know about the African, whether it's negative or positive. Nothing is moving you to go into research and to find out the truth about yourself. Yeah. Okay, now, this brother here, he has, I don't know if you saw the slides, but he does mass emphasis. He, he has his finger on the youth, on the post on the youth. So why don't you speak about um, how you're okay. outreaching to them? Yeah. Okay. Because he's taking his right. information yes. and sharing. Right. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, I mean, um, the one thing that is part of this decolonization process, and you're witnessing it happen right now, you're hearing um, a perspective rooted in victimization, and we have to go from victimization to making resistance to cornerstone of our narrative. So um, he mentioned social attitudes in Ghana. I have a comrade in Ghana that has been there since 1999, and Monica went to a school. The school is free. It's in the village of Ghana. He has made all 15 of Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah's books the cornerstone of the curriculum. The graduation rate is 100%. The college acceptance rate is 100%. He built that school from the ground. He's the principal there. So the projects, but let me just deal with the exposure. At the end of the day, it's all about exposure. We're all products of our exposure. Going to Africa? The Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey never set foot on the African continent, but he is. But Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah at Lincoln University 
after being stuffed with Mazzini, stuffed with um, Marx, stuffed with Hegel, stuffed with Machiavelli, stuffed with Socrates, read the philosophy and opinions of Marcus Garvey, it spoke to him, he went back, they organized that revolution, they liberated the nation. The Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey, who we're talking about, was sitting in St. Anne's Bay, Jamaica, and read Up From Slavery, Booker T. Washington's autobiography. He comes here looking to join him, ends up starting the largest mass movement we've ever had. In terms of so our projects, our campaigns, but that's when you make the leap from articulating ideas to actually executing ideas. And one thing social media has done is it has glorified social commentary because many of the people you see up there pontificating don't give any labor towards what they're talking about. The, dis the gap between their labor and their surface is from the earth to the rest of the galaxy. So that has to stop. In terms of what we do with mass emphasis, we'll deal with some specific things. Two years ago, we wrote our first play in another language. Kiswahili, called the Kiswahili Explosion. And it was about five children in Tanzania who wanted to organize homeless children in East Africa because at this moment there are 14 million children. And they found out through study that there was a celebration in North America called Kwanzaa and they wanted to reach out to African children in the United States because they learned that even though we're 12% of the population, we're 43% of the homeless. So we take these things, we take the history, tie it into geopolitical realities we're confronted with everywhere. We did another play for my son's welcoming to D.C. because he was born in New York called Araminta and Samora, celebrating, treating the sick, liberating the oppressed. If you know Samora Marshall, the first president of Mozambique's history, he was a nurse before he was a guerrilla fighter. And his first political activity was leading a protest on the hospitals talking about the disparity between Portuguese nurses and Mozambican nurses. His middle name is Moises. That's how you say Moses in Portuguese. Araminta Ross, Harriet Tubman was a nurse also. So what we showed in a play is men can be nurses and women can be liberators. So it's just a, to let on Thursday of the past week, some children in the poorest county in South Carolina for their African History Month program did a poem we have called the language poem. It's a, I'm, I, would, I don't have the time to say it, but we're gonna make it available to all of you. Four months ago, in the land of Thomas Sankara, Burkina Faso, which means the land of the upright, a 24-year-old sister named Enem Richardson has been living there for two years, has built a Thomas Sankara center in Burkina Faso, and she had children do that in French. Last year, while everybody was pontificating about Juneteenth, we brought together Juneteenth and the Day of the African Child. Because if you know the history, last year was the 30th anniversary of the Day of the African Child, something they've been celebrating on the continent since 1992. So we merge those two things together because they do that on June 16th in, in saluting the, the young people of Soweto in 1976. Juneteenth is around the same time. And we did that play we were talking about, Ready for the Revolution, about Akme Sekouture, but not just Akme Sekouture, but Mbalia Kamara, who led the women. And we had children in Jamaica, children in Trinidad, children in Canada, children in Kansas City, children in Cleveland, 
our troop in Washington, D.C., because we haven't had a virtual play in three years because of the pandemic. They did that. And, and before I end this, my contribution to this particular part of the conversation, our last play in person was called 1925. And we did that because if you know 1925, you know Brother Malcolm was born in 1925. You know Patrice Lumumba and Medgar Evers were born on the same day. And Franz Fanon was born in 1925, whose last book, Wretched of the Earth, was the most influential book written in the 60s. The Panthers made it their Bible. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee made it their Bible. So we have, on the battlefield, we have always merged our experiences and always gained inspiration from each other. I don't know the last time y'all read um, Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham jail, but he tells you, while our movement to end desegregation is moving like a horse attached to a buggy, the anti-colonial movement in Africa is moving like a jet. And he's correct because from Ghana, March 6, 1957 to 1960, 35 nations got their independence, the most rapid swing towards progress in the existence of the human race in modern times. So on the front line, we always feed off each other's energy. We end up fighting together. We end up connecting together. And uh, the ingenuity and consistency of our projects always reflect that. But you only get to that when you're making resistance the cornerstone of your narrative. But if you're just going to present a laundry list of obstacles and be so defeatist every time you open your mouth, it is what it is. You're going to embrace your fighting spirit or you're going to elevate defeatism. It's your choice. Wow. Okay, so thank you, Brother Obi. We're coming back to you, Ms. Jacqueline. Um, what are some, like if you can't start an organization like Mass Emphasis or Sankofa Homeschool, what can you do, what can the people do like right now to help, you know, bond, uh, forge the bonds? And for us, you know, to build Pan-Africanists, a stronger pan what can we do now? So you can build on what you were going to say yeah. and add that on. I appreciate that. Um, thank you so much, Mr. Obi. I really appreciated your point. About, Brother um, Obi to you. No Brother Obi, right. say less. <laughs> um, um, your point about victimization um, really touches on the point that I want to get at about um, liberation of the mind. Um, we have to take ownership and responsibility of moving forward. We can't. And I'm not saying disregard the past and the struggles, absolutely not. It's also understanding that when my mind is free, then I will be free. And so once we are free mentally and understand that we are powerful people and that we are more connected, as he mentioned, historically we've always been. And so we can continue to do that. And so I would, I would charge everyone with liberating your mind, however that may look like. Set yourself free from that point. And then we can get into the other things. And then I also want to say, taking responsibility. Taking responsibility for what? Um, I believe at one point or another, we all took part in joining forces with our oppressors to oppress each other or ourselves. And so we can't always blame we have to also take ownership. And I think forgiving and, and um, or even just moving forward, right? We are very forgiving people, right? We, black people, we are very forgiving. Because I, I, I told someone, I said, if, if we decided to revenge, 
Lord. <laughs> and so we are very forgiving people. And so in order to forgive ourselves, forgive others, we need to also take responsibility and, and have that freed mind. And so with that, I think, like I said, information is one way. Um, technology is another. Traveling, um, you know, there's education, but traveling is a different level of experience and education that you cannot get from a textbook. You cannot get it anywhere. Being able to go somewhere and enjoy the food, learn about the culture, um, see places, right? Um, Africa is not that feed the children child that was malnutritioned. I know we saw that for so long and people thought that was it. When people say, oh, African, we need to scratch it. I'm going to just say it because it's what you saw, right? It's what the TV was showing and, and no one went and, and saw it. Now people are like, oh, you're living lavish. Yes. When I go home, I humble myself because my life here is nothing compared to back home. My family members, my cousins, houses, mansions looking like castles. They have drivers, cars, businesses, left and right. When I need to go somewhere, they say, hey, are you coming over? I'm going to send the driver over. Food is great. Very low price, too, by the way. And so developing so fast, and we are far along. And the resources that we hold, the whole world is trying to take. The technology that is needed, the resources they need are right there. Everything stands back to the motherland. And so I encourage everyone to gather information, learn on your own, take it upon yourself. Use technology to leverage and, and become, you know, maximize on that opportunity to become stronger as a people. Travel as much as you can, wherever you can. And I'm not just saying the continent. I know everybody says Africa. Africa is a big place. It's a whole, there's a lot of countries in there, and you, Tanzania is massive, and there's a whole, like I said, a lot of tribes. I'm not saying we're about tribalism, I'm just saying that there are different cultures, there are different languages. Swahili is not the only language. Yes, Swahili is the largest spoken African language, but it's not the only language. And so just being able to understand that and embrace love. It's within us, and it's not going to be taken from us. And so um, those are just a few ways of, um, I think, that we can be able to move forward as a people together. That's very deep that you would say love because love begins with the man in the mirror, like Michael Jackson, not to quote MJ. But for real, look in the mirror. You know, it's all about loving yourself, you know, and falling in love with who you are, what you see. Right. Because we have layers and layers of self-hate that we have to peel away. You know, we are beautiful. Um, and so. At about 7.15, we're going to open the floor for questions, but I just wanted to, you know, open it up for you all in terms of um, um, strategies that we can employ. You know, we've heard learning, we've heard liberating your mind, taking responsibility from where, for where we are, loving yourself, um, using technology and information, traveling. What are some of the other um, galvanizing groups coming together with the children, teaching the children with what you have now. You may not have a school or a building. You do have this library. There are 26 libraries. You can use them all at any given moment in time. So we don't want to hear excuses, right? We want to do it. We don't want to talk. This is not about talking. You know, intellectuals like to get together and talk about their books. and But no, no, no. What are we doing for the young people now? Okay, the people at this table they're doing it. 
Okay. Anybody else want to talk? Um, oh, okay. So um, when my brother was uh, speaking earlier on about the school in Ghana and how we can educate ourselves through some of these Pan-African schools, I'm looking at the large number of us as Africans and you know African Americans and our ability to get access to the right information that is about us. It's a lot of Pan-Africans, like your Pan-African school in Ghana, uh, is owned by another brother, right? Um, I, yeah, I have, I, I don't know about it. And it's a lot of Ghanaians like me in Ghana who have no idea about it because we, we uh, only stick to the colonial system of school. When we talk about education back home, it's all about going to have that colonial structure system of education. Outside of that, any type of education is not important to us. And we, I've, I've had people you know, in conversation that said to me that if you cannot speak English fluently, fluently it means you're not intelligent. So we are measuring the intelligence of an individual per the colonial language. So that's how worse it is in the mind. In order for us to go past this, I would say the stereotype is already there. Like my sister mentioned, uh, traveling. Not everybody has access, you know, money or whatever to travel. But I would say if we come into contact with each of us, like, like we have it right now, we should be able to be open-minded. Yeah. Let's not carry on what we have been told about us, yeah. the negative. Let's be open-minded. Let's ask questions. Let's get along. Like my brother right here, my sister right here, rocking um, the smoke from Ghana. That's beautiful. That's connection. We can connect in different you know, aspects. You know, from uh, true clothes, food, you know, social media, get to know people, ask questions, just be open-minded. Do not stick to whatever that you've been told about the African, and the African also don't have to hold on to whatever they have been told about the African-American because you don't control the information. Exploration leads to discovery, and discovery leads to acquisition of knowledge. You have to explore to discover and to have the proper information and know the truth. If we don't have the proper information about us, we're not going to know the truth. So let's explore, let's ask questions, and let's be open-minded. Yeah, where we can learn about one another. Like, for example, I didn't know about mac and cheese until I got here. And my wife told me about mac and cheese. I was like, mac and cheese? What's that? You know what I'm saying? But now it's my favorite food. I love mac and cheese. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, so let's, let's get along, let's be open-minded, and let's learn from one another. Yeah, Thank that's you. what I was saying. And we're coming to Obi. Well, I, I don't want to follow Obi. I just want to say my quick piece. Um, this is to parents. Um, I would say that in terms of uh, uh, breaking up these stereotypes, eliminating these stereotypes, you can start with um, a cultural program. I, I would implore parents to look at programs like Fadafina Khan, um, Teratibu, 
enrolling your children in programs like this where they're with other children and they're doing something um, cultural related to music, they're not necessarily uh, you know, being taught or being forced to learn something. It, it becomes naturally who they are from what they're exposed to and the things they overhear. Um, I always share this example um, with people. My my son, my older son, plays soccer. He played travel soccer, and he had a friend over, and uh, another one of his friends was there that he drums with. And his soccer friend said, "Why are y'all always talking about Africa?" And they said very casually, "Because we're African." And they went back to playing the game, and it was that simple. And so sometimes, you know reading a library book, reading books to them, or enrolling them in a program that is going to infuse the culture in a fun way when they're with other children can lay the foundation for something that will, um, you know, have a, a huge impact on how they see the world and how they see African people. All right. And what about for the adults? Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Monica. So for the adults, and then we're going to open up the floor. Um, Yes. How do we um, engage our peers? Oh, well, what we've, been, what we've been doing for 33 years now is we don't teach to the children. We teach through the children. Because when you educate the children and you're, bring, you're sending them home with um, history that their parents didn't have quality exposure to, those parents are going to come find you for a variety of reasons. One, because what you're saying may not be where they're at on the spectrum, so they have to get comfortable with that. So you want to do that. So, I mean, there are different things. We do it all the time. I've taught our son since he was five years old. He's 17 now, or about to be. Yeah, so... Um, and I taught her, And I taught our oldest. So um, the, the thing is, with that, though, um, I believe that the humanitarian crisis that African people are facing, because as Kwame Ture told us, the biggest contradiction is while that is undoubtedly the richest continent the world has available to it, we are the poorest people, and we need to address that. So at this moment, they are, according to Forbes magazine, the Bible for many of you into capitalism, they are 1,778 billionaires on the planet worth $13 trillion. That's 1,778 individuals. They are 720 million people living on $1.90 a day or less. 409 million of them can be found in Mother Africa. So we're 70% of the world's poor. Of the countries that are considered that meet a category called extremely poor, 22 are in Mother Africa. Only Haiti, Afghanistan, and the Solomon Islands, they're the only ones that are not on that list. So, and, in, and what has happened is the humanitarian aid crisis in Africa has been used as political bribery. Yes. And this didn't just start. Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, he knows. Yes. He wrote a book called Neocolonialism. Yes. At the time, Ghana was penciled by the United States to receive $33 million in aid. When they saw the manuscript of that book, they said, you can't get the $33 million. He said, we, we, we won't miss it because we never had it. So um, he set a standard and he set a precedent. Um, he mentioned Thomas Sankara. 
His first policy decision as the president of Burkina Faso is he expelled the Western food-based NGOs. That's where the quote comes from, he who feeds you controls you. Only one nation in Africa has expelled the United States Agency for International Development, and that is Eritrea, which is the only nation right now in Africa that has free education and free health care for its people, and it is under attack by the Biden administration. Our people, through hip-hop, have been, um, our hip-hop artists, I hate to say this about them, but I say it to their face because I'm getting to meet a lot of them. They are the guinea pigs of the voter registration efforts in this country, voter manipulation efforts. So since we're supposed to do voter education, we need to make a more concerted effort to educate our communities about the United States-Africa policy. On the Mount Rushmore of our favorite white liberals is John F. Kennedy. When Patrice Lumumba was assassinated, Eisenhower said, take him out because he's a product of the military culture. Kennedy said, no, don't kill, assassinate him. You'll make him a martyr, but make sure he never returns to power. Which one was worse? Um, Harry Truman, Democrat, created the CIA. Only nation to drop, only president to drop the hydrogen bomb. Said Africa was better off in the hands of the colonialists. That's why Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois was removed from the NAACP because he wouldn't endorse him. So when we go back and look at these things, and like we said, I realize how quiet it got. I, I'm on the way to Selma tomorrow morning. For one week, I'm going to be in the schools in Selma, Montgomery, Birmingham, and Marion. We've been doing that for 13 years. But when you get down there, you know, that they, they got a sweet tooth for the Democrats, something terrible. So I had to ask them one day. They were going on about what President Trump called, talked about Africa, comparing it to a feces hole. I said, so you're more angry about Trump referring to Africa as feces than Obama bombing Africa for seven months in a row? Wow. Uh, Reagan bombed Libya for one day killed Muammar Gaddafi's two-year-old daughter. The integrationists say we got to be twice as better than white folks, so Obama took it to a whole nother level. However, though, what I'm, so what I'm saying, and, and, but in terms of a project, those of you, let me give condolences to you if you lost a friend or a loved one during the corona pandemic. That is tied to something bigger. Um, the former U.S. correspondent of Zimbabwe's national newspaper, as Sister Maria said, Thirteen years ago, all the African nations met with the World Health Organization at the United Nations General Assembly. And they were told that between 2010 and 2038, there will be 57 million deaths on the planet from non-communicable diseases. Because strokes, heart attacks, diabetes have surpassed HIV, AIDS, cholera, and malaria. And the WHO felt compelled to warn Africa first because of our least developed infrastructure. So what you saw with the corona pandemic was the first step in that direction. Cuba, a poor nation, a blockaded nation, sent 57 medical brigades to 40 nations, developed four vaccinations, the only nation in America to create, in the Americas, to create a vaccination manufacturer. And they have two African women vice presidents, by the way. But anyway, so what we're saying is, as I sit here, with a Tanzanian sister and a Ghanaian brother. We need to get together in this country 
And we need to look at a way, since everyone's talking about economics in Africa, investing in Africa, we need to talk about creating a resource pool for Cuba's efforts on the African continent. Seriously, no matter how Biden feels about it, no matter how Menendez feels about it, any of them. So that, that's what I wanted to say in relationship to a project that we can jump on right away. And it can start by us just sending medical supplies to them in the different African nations that we've developed an affinity to. And um, we are putting loving pressure on those who we love who seem hesitant, but we'll, get the, we'll, we'll break them out of that hesitancy because that's what the truth does. So, you know, that, that's where we are with it. Um, we want to open the floor for questions and related comments, um, related solutions. Um, so, and we can continue. Let's continue on. So let's, yes, please. I, I must follow up to Brother Obi's um, comment and specifically um, the last comment about I really appreciate that, the fact that you said, you know, contribute in terms of uh, medical support and other, other reasons, right? Um, because the aid that is given <laughs> is strings attached as much as it's like, hey, it's a, it's a donation. It's not. Um, I, I will also say that for so long, Africa has been looked at as a dump, you know, a clothing dump, a medical dump. I remember when... You know, we'd get medications that were no longer <laughs> allowed to be used here in the United States or other Western nations, and they dump it there. Yeah. And so I urge you in, in doing, putting together all those efforts to be mindful of what is being given. It's, we're not, we, we don't take leftovers or, or you know, and, and I'm not, I know that's not what he was getting at, but I do want to point that out because for so long that has been the case. Um, I, I really appreciated the African nations when it came to um, the pandemic because they, they put their foot down, many of them, and said, hold up, your Western system does not work here. We have our own system that works for our people. And so we have to be mindful of, and, and that really goes back to education and, and being intentional about understanding how does the other person operate, what works best for them. That wasn't working for us. We came to realize that the system here in the United States was clearly failed. Okay, you had South Africa actually championing and pulling through all kinds of research, and then the United States said, no, that's not valid, but it was. It goes back to the point about the education systems in the Western world are seen as the priority. But all that to say is we have power. And so in, in, what we're, in whatever way that we take action, we must be mindful that we need to be more intentional about research and understanding. It's meeting people where they're at. You don't come in with the white savior mentality. That's been the thing for so long. When I go home, people tell me, nope, I don't, we don't need your help. We're good. And so just being mindful that you're not coming in as I'm saving you, but rather we're going to work together. And so that's an approach that I encourage you all to do. Really quick, I wanted to touch on the other aspect. I'm in the fashion industry. Um, as Monica mentioned, I have a business, a boutique. And through that, I'm able to amplify our identity and our roots um, through fashion. I think that's an avenue. 
It's fun, right? We could be chic and rooted at the same time. And so in, in Reginald um, Mangi's words, we can, we must, and we will. Because to me, I think we can wear our culture. We are literally walking billboards, right? right? And so we are able to champion our culture and our heritage and our identity and reclaiming it and telling our own stories through various avenues. And for me, that is fashion. And so um, I look at African fashion as representing liberation, representing culture, identity, and beauty. And that's all us. And so I think it's time that we tell our own stories and our own truths because it hasn't always been told appropriately. I used to look at the Louis Vuitton. <laughs> they used to you know, model and create all kinds of expensive clothing with the Messiah Shuka. Never credited the Messiah people. I was offended. And that happens a lot. You look at the museums, etc. And it's like, hold up, that's our people. But they're not going to tell that story. And I know they go and they trademark things and own it and we can't come back. No. But we are now in a position where we can take that back and tell our own stories. So when I go and I use the Maasai Shuka and I work with the Maasai people to create products, I'm able to tell that story and flip it around because they never told it accurately. They left some gaps and people now, we have to represent it. And so I encourage you all, whether it's through fashion, through mental health, whatever avenue works best for you, whether it's activism, whether you're in the medical field, is to really um, meet people where they're at and find ways to um, share our roots and our origin, just champion um, our heritage through those different avenues. Thank you, Jacqueline. Um, before we, okay, so at about, at about five minutes, we're gonna have an information share. So if anybody has a business, an organization, and they would like to share resources, please, you have a moment to do so. Um, are there any questions, comments, um, burning, something burning in your heart that you came here with? think it's almost asking too much or unfair to I'm not going to say unfair but um, the Nigerian artist Burner Boy he has this famous song out now Last Last that's where we meeting now vibing off the music and that's where it, that's, it may get no further than that you know, everybody not going to go to uh, Africa. Everybody not going to do the research. A lot of diasporans meet together in the braid shop. It be conflict there. I've been getting my hair braided my whole life. How I beef with those sisters? And most of it is a language barrier, miscommunication. My last three braiders, I had to pull out the Google Translate in French. And now we're cool. And that's where we're going to meet. And it may not go any further than that. She turned me on to a dish I may like. Tebuje from Senegal is my favorite dish, African dish. I'll go to the restaurants. I'll let them do my hair. I'll wear some of the clothes. I'll get into the music. I've been a Fela Kuti fan since I was in college. I even traveled to Nigeria. My daughter is half a name. 
And sometimes I feel like this just may be enough for some people. Everybody not going. And I was practicing Pan-Africanism before I even knew what it was. I didn't even know what it is. Yeah, I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, and everybody black that I encountered my whole life, I considered as one people. And, I didn't, and it wasn't until I moved to Washington, D.C. for an internship in the start of my life that I started, um, I met the Dinkra people the, uh, uh, that have the business around there. And I said, oh, oh this is Pan-Africanism? I've been doing this anyway. So I feel like we're practicing some things. We're getting into the music. South African music is really popular these days. Travel to Ghana is super popular. People are going all over the continent. And I feel like we're doing good. We're, we're starting businesses together. I have a farm with my husband. We're growing cashews and yams. That's our daughter, Zenobia. I feel like we're, we're making a lot of progress. And I'm proud of us. And I, I look forward to uh, where we're going. We're doing business. We're doing travel. We're getting our hair done. We're eating at the restaurants. We're vibing to the music. We're taking dance classes. And a lot of the dance classes here are taught from African-American women. They study under other African people. So it's been, we're bridging the gap. And I'm excited about it. I can't wait for more. Right on, Tris. Yeah. And that's right. And it's like the quality. So you can take those interactions and it's the quality of the interactions that you have with folks and build on them. Right. And so it's not just like I tell people, people say, oh, Washington, D.C. is diverse. Is it? I mean, it's diverse, but are we are we connecting? You know what I'm saying? I'm not just talking about black folks. I'm talking about everybody are we interacting how is the quality of the interaction so let's continue to build on the music and the cultural kind of revelations that are happening yeah anybody yes please um i just wanted to say it's important to share positive experiences like that um because the more you see positive experiences the more likely you're wanting to have one yourself for me um when i traveled to ghana for the second time it was a solo tour. I had seen all of these things on Facebook that I wanted to experience. I wanted to see the Larabanga Mosque. I wanted to touch the Mystic Stone. So I put together a tour, and I connected with someone. I'm in tourism now as well. Um, and so I shared these experiences on my Facebook page, and I didn't know that I had developed a following. But I shared my positive experiences, my um, you know, I went to Africa as, as a student, as a humble student, not thinking that I, you know, I knew everything because these people had been living there long before, you know, uh, we came to, you know, save the day. So I, I think in sharing the, uh, like one of the most popular things I shared was in a grocery store that was so I don't know. People thought there weren't grocery stores in Ghana. Um, but, you know, and going to the mall, I was very intentional about sharing those normal things that we do here are also done in Africa. So I think sharing positive experiences are very important. Yes, Monica. And can I tell you, I'm a follower. Like, I, we're just, like, following Monica's vlogs. Like, ooh, what's she doing? Where's she going today? Ooh, they went there. I mean, and it really... It makes you fall in love with the country and you want to go. So keep, that is very powerful. Yes. 
I love, I really appreciate um, the sister in the back sharing that. And I thank you so much, Monica, for sharing that. I, it brought joy to, as you can see, I'm just like smiling. That's good. Um, and I really think that's a, an example of meeting people where they're at. Literally, that will get us so far. Um, and I want to encourage you all to check out Tanzania, whether it's learning about it. You know, not everybody may be able to go, right, physically. But I think you can experience it even virtually, right? And if you are able to go um, physically, even better. Um, so I'm going to ask everyone, whether or not you have your phone or if you want to write it down, um, write, write down or look up Curious on Tanzania. Curious on Tanzania. That is um, a travel company um, that my cousin uh, manages. She's a Brooklynite. Um, but she, she lives um, in Brooklyn, loves Brooklyn. Um, used to live there a lot most of the time. Now she spends 25% of that time in the U.S. and now 75% of the time in Tanzania. And so she curates trips um, for people to go and experience Tanzania in the way that you wanted to experience it, right? What do you want to get out of it? This is what she's going to ask you first. Are you a chef and you want to get a culinary experience from it? Um, so it's it's whether or not you want to go there physically or if you want to tap into her website or her social media and, you know, see how, what, what's happening in Tanzania. How does it really look like? How are they living? What kind of food is it? Um, what's going on politically? Um, just really understanding, opening our minds up to see beyond what maybe we have, you know, the stereotypes of what the, or what we have been limited to because it may not necessarily be stereotypes. And so I encourage you to do that. And also just, yeah, check out my website, jcanula.com, and get you some nice fashion. <laughs> jcanula, that is J-K-A-N-U-L-E. J-K-A-N-U-L-E.com. Um, yeah, J-K-A-N-U-L-E. Oh, yeah. Um, Mom Kelly, I was going to make a comment. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to... Congratulate everybody who's in this room. It's wonderful to have a gathering of this nature and everybody's participation. Now, uh, I'm going to direct this question comment to you, Obi. Um, there is um, a generational uh, resource reference that we we don't call up um, well many they, they've all passed on for the most part but such a richness because so much of the grounding that you all are discussing now these folks practice this yeah. almost as a ritual and it was deeply instilled within them their pride of person deeply instilled and they used the, the oral tradition to teach the ones who were younger than them I was raised by my grandparents and my grandfather had been in the Excuse me for a second here. Uh, um, 
the Garvey, he had been the Garveyite. Yes. And one of the things I'd like you to answer, Obi, if you know, if you're knowledgeable, of how the Garveyite folk and the traditions that they carried were uh, taken from us, so to speak. Um, Thank you. It's an honor to be in your presence, and it's an honor to have a question posed to me. Um, that beautiful woman right there, eight years, seven and a half years ago, she took me to New York City to meet the mother of um, the black theater movement in this country, Gertrude Janet, at her 100th birthday party. Not only did she make sure that I attended the party, but she ensured that I had a private conversation with her for 10 minutes. And um, I'll be forever grateful to her for that. And she has no idea how she has shaped me writing theater. So anytime I'm in her presence, I'm just humbled. And so um, it's always good to see you. Um, the methods of the Garvey, well, the Garveyite movement, here we are in Washington, D.C., it was a retired D.C. police officer that was given the charge to infiltrate the Garvey movement to bring it down, named Herbert Boland. So it starts there, but what the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey and those, and not just him, but his, his two wives, he wasn't a polygamist, his first wife and his second wife, Amy Ashwood Garvey, the first wife, the second wife, Amy Jock Garvey, and Brother Malcolm's mother, Louise, they worked on that newspaper, The Negro World. So, and it was circulated in all the colonial languages throughout the Americas. French, English, Spanish primarily. And he made sure that he got the best writers of that historical space, because when you're a journalist, you only have 500 to 1,500 words to write what you want to write. Sister Monica knows that. She freelances for the crisis given to us by Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois. But anyway, so they did that. The Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey used culture, one of the most important plays written during the Harlem Renaissance that they tried to write out of the Harlem Renaissance was Brown Sugar by his wife, Amy Ashwood Garvey. One of the finest playwrights of the earliest part of the 20th century is Henrietta Vinton Davis. The Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey, being a student of Booker T. Washington, the one thing that Booker T. Washington and Du Bois agreed on was the health question. Before Booker T. Washington left us, he started Negro Health Week. Du Bois' second sociological study, building on the momentum of the Philadelphia Negro, was the physique and health of the Negro American, written around 1905, 1906. So um, the UNIA had a nursing corps. They understood the importance of marching, the visibility aspect the importance of writing, the importance of organizing the business sector, the, this, the importance of having a support base. Many of you have to either, my, one of my trainers, Kwame Ture, said, if you don't join an organization working for your people, for, by that very act of inactivity, you're against your people. I want to make a tactical departure from one of my teachers. You should support an organization bare minimum if you're not going to join it. Because the support you give could be the difference between the ending of that organization and the expansion of that organization. 
And we have to teach our children. And the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey, one of their best secrets was they taught our people that organizing was not an option but an obligation. History obligates all of us. While I'm humbled that I've had a chance to reintroduce my father's book to the African world, I don't want to be treated a certain way because I'm a son of a fighter. The son of crackheads, the son of pimps, the sons of bank robbers, there's room on this front line. History obligates everyone. In terms of what the sister back there said, Fela Kuti did what he he did because of his mother. His mother is an early leader of the anti... She started the first political party in Nigeria when everybody else was starting movements, fronts, unions. We only had five political parties during the anti-colonial movement. Democratic Party of Guinea, Convention People's Party in Ghana, People Communist Party in Nigeria, Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde, by, started by Amilcar Cabral, and um, the United National Independence Party in Zambia. So um, with the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey, they clearly understood, and he had 40 branches in Cuba. I was just with his son three weeks ago. And for those of you who don't know, his son has reignited a campaign to get his father posthumously exonerated from being falsely convicted, thanks to J. Edgar Hoover, on the false mail charges. And so he was like, you seem to have a finger on the pulse of the people. I said, you're giving me too much credit. He said, but what can we connect that to that's living? I laughed. <laughs> he said, you, I said, hey, look here. Tupac Shakur is the most listened to hip hop artist in history. Maria tried to put me and him in a room together in 1991. Um... His aunt, Asada Shakur, is on the Homeland Security. She's considered the number one terrorist in the world. She got to come off of that. There's a $2 million bounty on her head. Understand the ramifications of that. First of all, the United States does not allow you to travel to Cuba. But they're saying that any renegade that buys into the propaganda against Cuba can sneak into Cuba and try to take her life, and that's okay with them because there's a $2 million prize at the end of the day, which is just as treacherous as the 635 assassination attempts on the life of Comandante Fidel Castro. So the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey understood what we said in the beginning. This is the Americas. We have to connect with Africans all throughout this hemisphere. The nation I would urge that I would say when it comes to travel, we talk about traveling to struggle. My return to, I I haven't been back to Nigeria since my parents took me out of there in 76. When I went home to Africa, I went to Zimbabwe at the invitation of the former president, Robert Mugabe. I had the honor, but the biggest honor of my life politically, I had a private meeting with him for an hour. We had taken his ambassador to 17 cities in less than a year and a half, organized 300 meetings for him with church leaders, with elected officials, with journalists, with lawyers, you name it, for free. But anyway, the the point was that we purposely went to a nation that reclaimed their land for their people. 70% of their most agriculturally resourceful land was occupied by 4,500 white commercial farmers. You say hip-hop, homie? 
The most popular hip hop artist in the last five years has been Elmayas Eshidon. You say, who is that? His name is Nipsey Hussle. He told everyone the reason I left the um, Rolling Crips, Rolling 60 Crips, is because my father sent me to Eritrea. And when I learned about the fact that 33% of the guerrilla fighters in Africa's longest armed struggle were women, I said, no way I'm going to pull a gun on anyone in L.A. again. No way am I going to let someone in L.A. pull a gun on another African, Eritrea. And so you notice that with all the celebration about Nipsey Hussle, I said earlier, this is the only nation in Africa that has free education and free health care. All our HBCUs should be connected to them. So how we connect and move on the ground is important because while I'm happy that Ghana's getting an influx, the president of Ghana is an enemy of the African Revolution, and we're going to transform Ghana from looking like an HBCU homecoming. Not a good look. But at the same time, it's about offering solutions. So look at the positive attributes of the nations that the United States demonizes and think about how we can connect with those nations. Zimbabwe has a 97% literacy rate. They didn't tell you that. Eritrea, 94% education free. So look at the nations they demonize and seek to bring regime change to. Don't, you can travel to them if you want to. Don't just, don't go to the nations where the leadership of those nations are comfy, cozy on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So we have to think about that dynamic also, because as this year is the 40th anniversary of the assassination of Maurice Bishop, the speech that got him assassinated, he gave a speech about tourism. And he said, if you set up a paradigm where the, the enjoyment of visitors takes precedence over the needs of your people, wow. you have undermined patriotism not only in your nation, but the region where your nation is situated. Give it up for OB. Okay. Wow. So... It's 7.46, and we're committed to start eating yeah. at 7.50. So, um, like I said, if there are any, if anyone like to come forward and to share, I, I would while you're thinking about it. Um, oh, that's nice. Brother brought me this back from Ghana. You know, isn't it beautiful? Yes. And they have an organ. They have a company called Issey Odom, right? Oh, Issey. Yeah, Issey on Odom. This is the shea butter. This shea butter is a beast, y'all. Like we can't. My household cannot live without the shea butter. If we we we, it's like crack. Like on your. You will love this shea butter. So, it's just an example. It comes. You you get it from Ghana. I mean, it's just an example of what we can do, what we have, you know, how we're connected. You don't have to go to Walmart and Walgreens and all of these places like that. No, no, no. We have everything we need in this room. Right. For real. So right. are there any, anybody want to come forward with a resource? The sister right there, then we'll go to Joshua. Hello, everyone. Hello. Good evening. Um, my name is Lydia, and I just wanted to come up here and say, like, thank you for um, imparting your wisdom tonight and sharing your experiences with us. 
Um, I'm a child of a woman from Tennessee and a man from Cameroon, Africa. So I like to say I am the African-American woman. (laughs) Um, And I really just um, have enjoyed the experiences talked about tonight. Um, I lived and studied abroad in Cameroon, Africa for an entire semester as a student at Hampton University. Um, And that was a completely life-changing experience. Um, As a lady mentioned in the back, uh, language barriers were real for me with my family speaking French. So being able to go there, learn the language of French, discover my tribes, discover the history and culture of the country of Cameroon changed my life. And um, from that experience, I decided to create my platform, The Lovely Adventures of Lydia. Um, You can find that on Google. Um, and just kind of learn a little bit about my experiences um, and also be able to see the different, like, organizations that are creating different um, activism opportunities for people throughout the world. So on there, I talk about my experiences studying abroad in my country of origin, and I also talk about the activism taking place in countries that aren't really highlighted Um, within the United States of America and within the Americas. So please go ahead and take it out. Um, Yeah, so I have been creating... Bamileke? Bamileke. Bamileke. Cool. Oh! That's awesome. Those those are Felix Mumi's daughters. I love that. Well, yeah, I lived in the Bamileke uh, region, uh, in the western region. I loved it. I think it's beautiful. You both should go back home, do your oh, pilgrimage, experience it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Miss Lydia. Yes. Okay. It is 7.50. Anyone else? Just just one more. We can take one more, one more. Y'all should have been shy. We were asking you for the time. Okay. Hi. I just wanted to say thank you. And... Um, I wanted to share that those of you who don't know how to connect, I grew up in a very white environment. Um, and I, I always wanted to know my people. So I took the African ancestry um, test and it was able to get dual citizenship back in November. And it was 109 of us. <laughs> and um, I'm, from, I'm from the Temne tribe in Sierra Leone. <laughs> and it was 109 of us and um, just for that country in Sierra Leone twice a year the president in April and November has an initiative where people who have used African ancestry can go back and take advantage of the dual citizenship and not only do you have dual citizenship in Sierra Leone they give you the ECOWAS passport so you have um, you don't have to have a visa to visit the 16 West African countries So I suggest you take that test to connect so you can just create those partnerships. I received a new name. Um, I connected with people of my tribe, and I'm going to definitely be using um, my ability to go back and forth for good. Right on, right on. And what we're going to do... Oh, yeah. Okay. The only thing you I, and then Jacqueline, yeah. yes. Okay. The only, the only thing I wanted to say, though, is because um, it's, it's been mentioned numerous times, if you're interested in your children being part of that virtual history class on Saturdays, there are three options, 10 to 11, 3 to 4, 4 to 5. I'll be here so you can connect with me. 
And um, if you want your children in the theater company, same thing. So we want to make that um, available to all of you. That's why we're here. You must do that. Trust us. Our child uh, went through the African history class and knows all of the countries. I mean, like, it's just a an exposure. It's a love of self. It's a community. you got to do it. I'm telling you. Um, Monica and then Jacqueline, and then we're going to eat. Okay. Um, I just wanted to add, if, um, if you are interested in homeschooling, um, we also use African languages as a way to connect um, children to Africa. We have uh, someone from Ghana who teaches tree. Uh, we have someone from Nigeria who teaches Yoruba. We have a direct descendant of the, um, na- uh, the woman king nation who is teaching um, French from Benin, um, also Swahili. So that is a resource and a way to connect. And also, if you're interested in traveling to Ghana, um, I work, uh, I'm the U.S. coordinator for Him Tours Ghana. And um, I can answer all your questions and ease all your fears. Right on. All right. Thank you, Ms. Monica and Ms. Jacqueline. Um, one, thank you. Thank you all um, for sharing, for connecting, um, for engaging. And I just want to take a moment to recognize our elders, our well-seasoned folks, um, because when mama there, I said mama because that means we say mama in Swahili and just kihai uh, and everything in Tanzania meaning mother, um, because our elders carry so much light. And as mama over there mentioned, um, she said oral history, right? We can literally, I know we didn't mention it, but it's a huge resource. We can sit down with our elders and learn. I live, I literally live for this moment. As Brother Obi was sharing, listen, I don't know it all. And as he was sharing the history and everything was just like so much light and liberation was just filling me. And so I encourage everyone to respectfully sit down and hear what our elders have to say because when they pass, we don't, we don't want that to be lost, right? We want to be able to carry that light all throughout. Our ancestors passed on the light. Our elders are continuing to pass on the light. And we, too, can continue to pass on the light. Um, and so I thank all of um, our elders who are gathered here and all around, because back home, we call them Wazewetu. Wazewetu means our elders. Okay, okay. And so, so much respect for them. And so please honor that. Honor them, honor that. And again, thank you all so much. Thank you. All right, all right. We, you have an announcement, like 30 seconds for real. Just real quick. Hi, everybody. My name is Maurice. I'm the multi, uh, multimedia producer here at the library. Um, this month, for Black History Month, the theme is Black Resistance. Uh, so as a part of that, the library actually produced a digital series on the YouTube channel called As We Are. R stands for resistance. Each episode is about 30 minutes or less. And what we do is we pair up black Washingtonians to talk about what black resistance means to them in the context of the work they do, uh, that they do, either in a given industry or around a certain cause like D.C. statehood or what have you. Um, I would implore you all to go watch that series. It's really great. Currently, we have out five episodes. One actually came out tonight featuring Gloria Dean, who's the founder of Well-Read Black Girl. 
and um, Michaela Skurlock, who is a 2017 Howard grad. She's been managing uh, Sankofa Bookstore for some years under the Garima uh, couple, if you know about them. So by all means, please go watch that series on your own time. Share it. Um, it's, it's called As We Are. R, capital R. R stands for resistance. Um, and it is a series that we're looking to continue over the rest of the year so that we can hit more topics thus far. We've done statehood, literature, food equity, and a few more. Um, so, yeah, just check it out. All right. Okay, listen up, please. Special, special thank you. Jeanette Graham, Woodridge Manager. Rosa Ramirez Lopez. Mateo Lopez. And Damtoff. Denise Barnes. Henry Melvin Joseph III. Yeah, he bought all that food, y'all. Yes. Stacey Hill. Eric White. Kenneth Desperate. Soul Kitchen. Fatmata Ebelum. Michael Makash, Joshua Davis, Ephesin Kwame, all the panelists, Obi Igbuna Jr., Jacqueline Kamazima, Michael Makash, Monica Utsi. Yeah. Shout them out, y'all. So what we're going to do is we're going to move those chairs. Two brothers, if y'all can move those chairs. We're going to let the elders eat first. We're going to wash our hands. We have a men's room to the left, a women's room to the right. We're going to wash our hands, and we're going to partake. We're going to chat it up. We're going to mix and mingle. We're going to build. We're going to heal. We're going to love, and we're going to keep keep building. Thank you so much, panelists, so much, Survey. panelists. Survey. Turn the music up. Let's party, y'all. Survey. Let's party. Survey. Let's party. Survey. Oh, one more thing. Okay, go ahead. Come on. you killing my groove, brother. Come on now. <laughs> We're getting ready to, we want you to fill out a survey before you leave today. We have yes. some pencils and, uh, and just leave it on the table on your way out. Thank you yes. very much. fill out the surveys. We got to get these funds flowing. 